Take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. I know that Romans 4 might seem, upon first look, like a boring chapter when you put it in the context of Romans. Romans is filled with some of the most memorable phrases. Aaron read one to us from Romans 8. There, I mean, the book is just littered with memorable phrases, paragraphs, profound truths that have shaped our lives. And so we come to Romans 1 through 3, and we're just overwhelmed with the picture of the sinfulness of mankind. And then the salvation offered only by God's gospel at the end of chapter 3. And the truth is that we could move from chapter 3, verse 31, to chapter 5, verse 1, and we would not lose any of the content of the overall message of Paul or the Holy Spirit through Paul. Romans 3, 31 declares to us that we don't, make the law useless, meaningless. We uphold it because we believe in the righteousness which is available by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's, that's his conclusion there in that paragraph. And if you go to 5.1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, you see how it just picks right up. So another reason why we might be tempted to just kind of read quickly through Romans 4 and say, you know, I don't know, all this Abraham stuff, some of you might have read it in the past and go, well, I'm not a Jew, so it doesn't really matter to me. <laughs> Boy, would you be wrong? I mean, well, well, okay, I won't say that, but that, that might get me, that might cause more trouble. Actually, what Paul could do is skip this important chapter. This is a vital chapter. Because it's in this chapter, after having given the outline, the sentences which answer the objections that Paul is hearing from the Jewish Christians of his day, that he begins to unfold paragraph by paragraph through the example of Abraham's life, detailed answers to those questions. I believe it's so we have an example of faith in the life of Abraham. He uses this chapter to drill down to the very details of salvation through faith alone. And this makes the chapter necessary to our faith because without it, we would potentially miss the radical nature of the gospel that we have been called to believe. This is the truth of the nature of the gospel. Hear this. Matter of fact, if you finish preaching what you call the gospel and everyone leaves feeling very comfortable with what you've said, then you have not preached the gospel. When Paul preached the gospel, no one was comfortable. Everyone was upset. The good news is that all Christians, Jews and Gentiles, are saved through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, for the glory of God alone, as revealed in the Scriptures alone. Now that's a bullet form. You see it around this pulpit. That's a bullet form of the good news. And if we preach any message that deviates just the slightest from that message, then we're not preaching the gospel. We're preaching a potentially a self-help message, which we hear a lot in pulpits today. Or we're preaching a works-oriented message, which we hear throughout the world today, especially in the South. Or we might be preaching any number of other messages, but it's not the gospel. This is the most radical message the world has ever known. That God counts sinners righteous in Christ alone. And he does it through the instrument of faith. Not one 
work of their own, only in the completed, finished work of Jesus Christ. It's the most radical message the world has ever heard. And this is why when it is preached purely and consistently, it turns the world, the church, and the lives of those who believe it upside down. It became the defining characteristic of the disciples that followed Jesus Christ on the earth in his life. They stood before the Jewish council, and what they said about them is this. These guys don't have any college degrees, but they speak with the greatest wisdom and eloquence the world has ever known because it's obvious they've been with Jesus. And they left that place rejoicing God, in God's good works, and they turned the world upside down. Too many times, church, Grace Fellowship, listen, people like us are depending on our eloquence and our intelligence and our works and our offers of self-help to bring the people from the community to God. Too much reliance on self destroys the message of the gospel. It doesn't need your help and it doesn't need my help. Our job, Paul would say, is to simply live the way our father Abraham lived, by faith in God's promise alone. That's why chapter 4 is necessary. It's why we didn't skip it. And the context of this great chapter really goes back to Romans 3.21, where the gospel is preached and then picks up with the explanations, which we've been walking through week by week. And now we're in verses 13 through 15. I want us to remember a few things together. I want us to think about a few things together before I read the text even this morning. Because it's going to bring up words like promise and faith and law and a lot of those kinds of words. And we've talked a lot about faith, but I was thinking this week, we really haven't publicly defined it uh, as the Scripture defines it. Romans, I mean, excuse me, Hebrews 11, listen to this, says this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the evidence or the assurance of things that we hope for and the conviction of things that we cannot see. I think it's helpful for us to think about what is faith and why is faith vital to having a relationship with God. Where does faith come from? How is faith not just another work that brings me to God by my own intellect or will? These are all questions that will help us be ready for the sermon today. So what you're getting right now is the pre-sermon, and then you'll get the sermon on the text. It's important when we're preaching or we're teaching or we're reading or we're writing to define terms because words mean something. Young folks, believe me when I tell you this. The biggest revolution that's taking place in our world right now is that the world has begun to believe the ideology of Karl Marx who redefined the very words that have been used for centuries and the new definitions are false and they will destroy you. That's happening not just in the world, by the way. It's happening in the church. We're redefining words that have been historically defined in a way that is faithful to the scripture and now you can talk about faith and grace and love and all these things and the people that are hearing you use these words are defining them in their head by a definition contrary to the Bible so one of the best things you can do when you're preaching the gospel is make sure you're talking about the same faith that they're hearing you're talking about the same kind of love that they believe in that you're talking about grace in a way that is so clear and obvious that their wrong definition is challenged. So that's what I want to do real quick. There are so many wrong understandings of faith in the church today. But let me give you this simple definition from John Piper of what faith is. Faith is trusting in and being completely satisfied with all that God has promised to be for us in Jesus Christ. Faith, <clears throat> faith then, is 
defined by this definition because it captures the crucial components of faith. Trusting, satisfied, God's promise, Christ Jesus. Notice the utter absence of anything to do with you. Nowhere in that definition does it say anything about us. It's all about Him. This definition is, I believe, thoroughly biblical because it removes any thought that belief is merely a set of facts that I believe to be true. Yes, there are facts that I must know and believe to have true faith, but it is never merely belief in facts. Saving faith is never merely belief in facts. It's also biblical because it does away with the idea that faith is merely a feeling of emotion that I have towards Jesus. Yes, we as Christians should be overwhelmed with emotion toward Jesus. But merely feeling emotional or sentimental toward Jesus is not true faith. Well, what is it then? Faith is trusting my life and eternity in the promise of God which He has made to us in Christ Jesus to the point that my striving with God has turned to satisfied peace with Him. This is what faith is according to God's Word. In Genesis... We see this in the life of our father, Jacob. Jacob wrestled with the pre-incarnate Christ. Christ before he took on flesh. He wrestled with him throughout the night. And as the sun began to rose, he was commanded to let go. And what did he say? He exhibited faith. He held on and he said, I will not let go until you what? Bless me. What was he doing? Well, he got a new name that day. Israel. Do you know what Israel means? So many people don't know what it means. The name Israel means to strive with God. You see, you and I should strive with God until he overwhelms us to the point that we cry out for him to bless us. And then our striving becomes peace. Because in that blessing, which we can only receive from him, all of our journeys through this world terminate into one thing, and that is the life and work of Jesus Christ. And we are satisfied. We are content in him and him alone. Some of you have no peace in your life because you're still wrestling with God about matters and things and possessions and problems. And you need to be like Jacob and just say, God, bless me. God, bless me. Give grace to me. He will always answer that prayer. This is what it means to have faith in God. To have had our striving cease in peace because we are satisfied with what God has promised to us in Christ alone. Where does it come from? Where does faith? Where does it come from? And how do I know that that is what I have in my life? I'm so glad you asked. Y'all are such a participatory audience. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 answers the question of where it comes from. Paul writes these words, For by grace... You have been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing. Faith is not your own doing. Grace is not your own doing. Salvation is not your own doing. That's what he means. None of those things are yours. What is it then, Paul? It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no 
one may boast. Saving faith is not from our flesh. You hear what I'm saying to you? You don't believe because you convinced yourself to believe, not savingly. You don't believe because someone had some emotional appeal that whipped you up into excitement and ecstaticness that you would come forward and do anything out of emotion to save you. Faith doesn't come from you. It is purely a gift of God so that we cannot take credit for our belief. It does away with boasting. So when me, when me and another man have a conversation, I'm in Christ, he's outside of Christ. It is completely anti-gospel for me to hold over him some kind of power like I'm better than him because I believe and he doesn't. I'm smarter than him because I believe and he doesn't. I, it does away with frustration when you tell someone the gospel and they reject it. It does away with frustration. Things like you getting in your car and saying, what's wrong with this person? What's wrong with them? Are they stupid? What's wrong with them? Well, if they'd just be smart like I was, you don't have biblical faith. No, when a Christian preaches the gospel to a lost man and then gets in his car, his ear is... Ears are attuned to what he heard that man say and his eyes shed tears as he says, Oh God, give him the gift of belief just like you did me. I'm not a salesman. You're not a salesman. God doesn't need a salesman. God needs ambassadors to simply proclaim the good news. That's all he wants. God has given to us what God requires from us by giving us saving faith. He goes on to say this destroys any ground for boasting because it's not a result of works. So this faith of Abraham we're about to, we've been studying and we're about to look at again in Romans 4 is faith that was given to him from God from above. It's otherworldly. It's not from this place. It's not from his flesh. And if we're children of Abraham, then we are like him in that we have received this same gift of faith from God. This means we can't boast in our flesh, our works, any marks that distinguish us from other folks, like circumcision or baptism, religious practice, or the law. We can't boast in any of those things because that's not how we came to God on those things. We came to God by faith alone. Faith means that all we can boast in is the glory of God as revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. That's our only boast, is Christ and Christ alone. Carlton, why are you different than the Carlton I knew in high school? Because of him. Well, you seem to be such a better person. You've improved. No, I'm as rotten as I ever was in myself, but oh, how good he is to have changed a sinner like me. Well, you're not wicked anymore. I'm, I'm more wicked than you can imagine. But I've received a grace that's greater than all my wickedness. That's the gospel. That's what stirs our hearts and our minds to affection for Christ. How do I know if I have this saving faith in my life? Well, I want to give you an analogy from an old country boy who grew up on a farm. And I know you didn't. Most of you didn't. Some of you did. But it'll still mean a lot to you, I think. This is how the Bible talks about it, I believe. The seed of any plant contains all that is necessary for that seed to be a full-grown, mature plant. All that's necessary is inside of that seed. So, it is with faith. Everything necessary for new life is inside the new life, which Jesus says comes from above. Doesn't come from us. Comes from above. You must be born again. Born from above. How? Through the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? Listen to me. The Spirit takes the seed of the life, the new life, and plants it in the ground, the soil 
of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. You have therefore been buried into Christ, united into Christ in a death like his and a resurrection like his. That's what it means to be united. So the seed is planted into the ground, the work, the life, the obedience, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone. And this is what happens. That seed has to burst forth with a root. It's the natural process. The seed is sown into the life and work. That's that's the new life that you have in Christ. It's sown into the work of Christ alone. And the first thing that sprouts out is faith in Christ. What's the first thing that happens when a person is made alive? That seed is planted in the ground. They believe. They trust. They treasure. They find satisfaction to all their wandering in Christ alone. And that root goes down and presses the plant up. And it breaks out. And that's the evidence that everybody sees at conversion. (laughs) And we tend to celebrate that. And we should. But that's not it. That's not all there is. Thank God. That plant keeps growing And what pushes it up, listen to me, is that faith grows down deeper into the nutrients of that soil, the work of Christ. And that is pulled up by the power of the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead into our lives so that it presses out branches and leaves and buds and blooms and fruit. The Bible says true faith always produces fruit. Oh, well, well, wait a minute. What about the thief on the cross? What fruit did he produce? The same fruit we produce. Because, see, you've counted fruit wrong. You've made fruit all about what you're doing. He believed in Christ just like you do. His life was transformed Just like yours was, because he was headed to hell. He believed he would die in his sin. And the moment he believed he was saved, buddy, I believe that man's eyes were opened wide. And he said, boy, heaven's coming. Eternity sits in front of me. And a fruit began to be born immediately in his life. Because no one will see God unless that fruit's born. And that man saw God that day face to face in paradise. The, faith, the life is planted in the life of Christ, which is the ground. The root is the faith that connects it. And it pushes in immediately, naturally. It happens more and more belief. Presses up. Presses up the plant which bears fruit. So that when people see the fruit, they glorify your Father in heaven. They say nothing like this could ever come from that man. That woman. God must be at work. Is that true or not true, church? It's true. And see, these past two weeks we've preached sermons that have made a lot of you very uncomfortable because we said things like reading your Bible doesn't save you. And you kept wanting to say in your mind, and some of you said out loud, well, wait, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. If you do that, they'll stop reading their Bible. No. They'll stop reading their Bible for the wrong reason. Oh, if you tell them they don't have to do anything, they won't do anything. That's the same lie the Judaizers believed. Paul, if you take the law and circumcision away, people will live lives that are hellish. And he said, no, you're living a hellish life of religion that will send many men to hell. And I resist you to your face. Paul knew what we better know, church. Preach the radical gospel. Don't prop it up with anything that will rival it. No works, 
Nothing. Sinclair Ferguson says it like this. Faith is an open mouth that is filled. It's empty. It's empty. And then it's filled by the gracious bread given in Christ from heaven. You can open your mouth all day long, but unless God sticks bread in it, you'll go away hungry. But thank God he gives us a compulsion in faith to open our mouth and he immediately fills it with the bread of heaven, the manna that satisfies. That is faith. That's what it is. That's how it works. So that we can focus on Christ, truly focus on Christ, press down into Christ's life, death, burial, resurrection, and what will happen? A life will press up. The more I press into Christ, the more a life will press up. Listen to me. If you take the plant, you pull it up out of that soil, you turn it upside down, and stick the fruit in the ground as what connects you to Jesus, you'll die. Too many times, that's why I said last week, too many times when someone says, how do you know you're a Christian? You start listing all the good things you've done. And then you wonder why you have no confidence. When what you should be doing is listing all that Christ has done. How are you saved, Christian? All that he's done. Well, don't you have to do something? No, because if I did, I would fail, and my failure would disqualify me, and I would go to hell. I would have no salvation. He's done it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That's my hope in this life and the next, is that Christ, my Savior, my mediator, has done all that's necessary to bring me to God. That's the only hope I got. And you say, well, you got to tell them what to do. No, I don't have to tell them anything about what to do. Just tell them that. Feast on that. Sit at his table and eat the delicacies of the gospel. And what will happen is a plant will jump up and fruit will go out because you'll start looking like the one you gaze at. Stop gazing at yourself. Bunch of belly button gazers is what we got in the Christian faith. They want to gaze at their accomplishments and gaze at all they've accomplished and done. That's hogwash. Gaze at the finished work at the cross by faith and be satisfied and at peace with your Father in heaven. And your life will be filled to overflowing with goodness because He's already prepared it for you and you'll walk in it. Some of you just need an altar call right now because you're not really his and you just realized it for the first time. You've been living a pretend life of trying to be some good religious person and for the first time it clicked in your mind and heart, I don't need to be good, I need Christ who is the definition of goodness. So if that's you, I'm going to keep preaching. You cry out to him and he will save you because the new life has sprung up And faith is working. So don't delay. Don't delay. Now that we've had that understanding of faith, I want to move on to our text for today. Now I will preach. Paul in Romans 4 has done away with boasting in the flesh and in circumcision. And now he's going to deal with the law of Moses. Our text says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adher- if it is to the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. First of all, we see that God promised Abraham and his children the world as an inheritance. The world. The first thing we have to wrestle with in this text is that very phrase, that he promised him the world. Because if we go back to the Old Testament and we read Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and even 22, what we're going to find is, is that he promised him physically the land of Canaan. 
That's what he told him he would, his heirs would possess. We're not going to take the time to read that story, but I, you can't know the New Testament truth of this passage without that background. So if you don't know that background, go there. Genesis 12 and read all the way through 22. What God promised him in 12 was leave your land and your family and I will give you land and a family. That's what he promised him. And he believed it. And he proved that by walking out. He left. In 15, God comes back to him to reiterate the promise which he had already made to him. The promise specifically about heirs. That he would have an heir. That he would have one that was of his own flesh. And now he's an old man, and Sarah's old also. And he challenges and says, look, Eleazar's my only, in, in, only heir in my house. How, how is it that you're going to give me a great nation through an heir? And God promises him, I will give you a nation, many nations, through your heir, the promised one, that will come from your flesh. Genesis 17 he adds to that the sign and seal of circumcision, and he reiterates that his descendants will be greater than the stars of the sky and the sands on the seashore, and they will be a blessing to all peoples. Isaac is born after the circumcision, and then Isaac becomes a young boy, about to be a man, somewhere around 12 and God calls him to do something very strange. Take the promised and only child to the mountain and offer him to me as a sacrifice. And Abraham goes in faith, believing that God would raise him from the dead. That's, that's what the text says. I mean, that's what the Bible tells us. He believed that God would raise him from the dead. He shows that by telling the servants, the boy and I will go on the mountain and worship, and the boy and I will return to you. He shows his faith when he's asked by his son, Isaac, who must be getting a little nervous at this point, Father, we have the instrument to kill the sacrifice. We have the fire to burn it. We have wood. But where is the sacrifice? He doesn't look at his boy and say, well, you're it. No. He said, God will provide for himself a sacrifice. Why? Because he believed God. And Isaac climbed up on that altar and he raised up that dagger to take his son's life. And pre-incarnate Christ grabbed hold of him and said, Now I know. Now you have proven. Now you have shown the world that you believe. Look over there. I've provided for myself a sacrifice. He didn't require the life of that boy. But in Genesis 22, he says, listen to me, Abraham, your descendant, your heir, will possess the gates of his enemies. It's the first clue that we get in Genesis that this promise is about more than the land of Canaan. He's going to possess the gates of even further than that, his enemies. And it's lived out in the people of Israel's history as they go from being a people in Egypt 430 years later, enslaved, set free by God through the ministry of Moses, brought to Mount Sinai, the law is given. They then inherit the land that was promised to them as they cross over the Jordan. And you can read all about the conquering conquest of Joshua and the people of Israel in that day. And that at the end of Joshua... He says to the people, God has fulfilled His promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob this day. We possess the land He promised to them. Believe God is what He's saying. As for me and my house, we will worship the Lord. You choose who you will serve. Right? Did God give the land that He promised to His people, to them? Yes, and he sustained that promise through the life of David and the promise of an eternal throne. But listen, the oddest thing happens. The prophets all prophesy that there's a day coming when God's people will have all the land. Not just the land in the Middle East. All of it. Isaiah being the most common to talk this way. 
broad, universal, worldwide promise that they would have all of it. It would be theirs. You see, they began to believe what Abraham already believed. And this funny thing happens. They weren't faithful in their belief. And what God did was take all of their possession from them. He ran them out of the land. And a matter of fact, they go for years, hundreds of years, and don't hear a word from God. And then, at the right time, God spoke to us by His Son. He sent one greater than Abraham. He sent the one who was the fulfillment of all the promises to Abraham. And Jesus Christ grew up in that promised land. And here's what he did, starting at age 30. After his baptism, is he spiritually conquered the land. He took it. You say, wait a minute. Don't spiritualize it now. But that's what the Bible does. Those promises were fulfilled and they were extended with expectation to something greater than what they had heard in the old day. And they lost it. Why? Because they were not continuing to follow the word of the Lord. And so God was silent until he spoke in his son. And when he brought Jesus, and then at age 30, Jesus launches out into his ministry. Go read the ministry exploits of Jesus Christ and tell me what's happening. He's reversing the curse. He is letting the captives go free. Thousands are coming to believe in Him. The whole of Israel is flocking to Him. Not just Israel, Samaria. Not just Samaria, but even some of the Gentiles are coming. Why? Because your heir, Abraham, will possess the gates of his enemies. And Jesus Christ, having conquered that land, died so that they could be set free eternally. And get and fully delivered to them the promise. And when he was raised from the dead and he spoke to his men, we don't have time to get into all of it. But listen, if you look at all of the words of Jesus after his resurrection, it's very clear he's saying some things very important. Number one, I have done all that's necessary for you to be saved and to enjoy the blessings of the kingdom. Number two, I will give you the seal of the kingdom, which is the Holy Spirit. And when I give you the Holy Spirit, then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, and Samaria, and to the what? Ends of the earth. You, Abraham, and your descendant will possess all the gates of your enemies. Spiritually, it's happening right now through the preaching of the gospel worldwide. It happened in Paul's day, and it has happened in every generation since then, that the gospel has gone from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. God has delivered it. God has done it, this great work. Is this all we are to expect? No. No, there's more. Listen to these words. By faith, Abraham believed, obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was not to receive, uh, that, or excuse me, that he was to receive as an inheritance. You'll have to excuse me. I got to put these on. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. You hear it? As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him. There's our word heirs. With him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to possessing the Middle East. No. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. What did Abraham believe? He would get the whole world. What world? The world that God would deliver, whose foundations were built by God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man... And him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, 
But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. The substance of the promise is the fulfillment in Christ Jesus. And Abraham believed that and it was counted to him as righteous. And it's through that promised one that he possesses the whole world. Not just this world, but the world to come. That's what Paul's saying. Too many times we're focused on what's right in front of our face. But faith is believing what you can't see. Too many times we're looking in this world for signs and things that will tell us the future. And what Jesus said is, fix your eyes on me and watch for my return. Everything that tells us about the end to come is with him. His Father will send him and he will reveal the kingdom which has grown up in this world and it will blossom in the next world after he destroys all sin and death and the grave, finally. And the kingdom and the promise will be absolutely full for all of eternity. That promise, Paul says, that promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through righteousness of faith. So, simply put, The promise didn't come through the law because the law of Moses was not given until 430 years later. How could the promise come through that which hadn't been given? The promise was fulfilled by Christ, received by faith. How can we be sure of this? Well, I read Hebrews, right? But listen to this. Jesus, you might say, well, the writer of Hebrews, maybe he was a little confused. Listen to what Jesus said about Abraham. In John 8, you can check me out, in John 8, 48 through 59, talking to the Jews of his day, who claimed Abraham as their father, Jesus told them, your father's the devil. Your father's not Abraham. Because if your father was Abraham, you would have believed and rejoiced in me. Why? Because Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. What was Abraham looking for when he left Ur of the Chaldees? A city from heaven, whose foundation is built in Jesus Christ alone. And he didn't ever own any stitch of ground until his wife died and he bought her a grave. He had nothing in this life. Let me tell you something that this does for us Christians. It cuts us free from worrying about what we have in this life. Faith like this says, I don't own anything. It's all God's anyway. All that I have is his. Therefore, all of it can be given. All of it can be taken. I can face prosperity and I can face imprisonment. And I'm content because I have all these things in Christ Jesus who is my Lord. Well, don't you think that if we're faithful, God ought to give us something? I mean, doesn't he reward those who are faithful? He absolutely does. He's going to give us the whole world. When, you, when I go on great vacations, and I try to go on a great vacation every now and then, you need to see the world if you get a chance. It's a beautiful thing. And when I see those beautiful sights, you know what I do? You can ask my family. I start talking about the fact that all of this belongs to us. Like, all of it belongs to us because we're heirs with Christ. Because we have the same faith as Abraham, so it's all ours. You say, well, I just live in a little bitty house. Who cares? In the next life, every inch of the universe will belong to you. By faith, not by your works of the law. By faith. The law actually makes faith empty and promise no good if that's what we count on. Look at verse 14. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, 
Faith is null and the promise is void. If, Paul says, it wasn't the promise believed in by faith and it was the promise fulfilled by those who keep the law, then it's null and void. Why? Because no one's ever kept the law? That's one reason. Because no one ever kept it. If you're going to depend on the law, then depend on the law. All of it. But the problem is you can't. You've already failed. I've failed. So if that's true, then it's not a promise. It's an empty promise. It's, it's void. It's meaningless. If it was about the law, then none of us get it, so the promise is no good. It's like me telling Nick, I'm going to give him $10 million. Aren't you happy, Nick? I'm going to give you $10 million. But here's the thing. For you to get that $10 million, you have to live perfectly in both actions and thoughts and heart motivations. Perfect. Then you'll get the $10 million. Are you happy about that, Nick? Already failed. If God gave a promise like that, it would be no promise. It would be dangling a, a carrot in front of people that they could never attain. That's not our God. He's a good God. Our God said, hey, Nick, I'm not going to give you $10 million. I'm going to give you eternity with me. And all the world belongs to you. And when you say, how do I get it? He just said, trust in me. How do you feel about that promise, Nick? A lot better. Why? Because it depends on him and not Nick. That's what he said. It doesn't, it doesn't depend on the law. Because the law came after it, chronologically, 430 years after. But more than that, because you could never keep it. If it was a promise based on the law, it would be a worthless promise. It would be taunting you, holding something out in front of you you can never get. But that's not our God. He said, I promise it and I deliver it. It's yours because you trust in me. It's not nullified. It's not void. It's finished in Jesus. And we have received it through him. This is because the law brings wrath because it's impossible to keep and is designed to show us our failure. That's what he says in verse 15. He really doesn't add anything about the main content, but he gives a, a side statement about the law. He says this about the law. The law brings wrath. Why? Because no one can keep it. Because all your works are not sufficient. Because all you can do is fall short of the glory of God. Because all you will ever do is break the rules in your flesh. The no trespass sign is posted. You see it, and you walk on the other side to go hunting. That's what transgression is. Sin existed in the world before the law. But transgression was counted against them once the law was made obvious. Why? Because where there's law, there's transgression of the law. There's the breaking of the law. Transgression is not just falling short of the glory of God. That's been true since the garden. What, what was added when the law of Sinai was given is transgression. And what is that? That's the clear, undeniable truth of the moral standard of God. And you and I have violated it. So we are transgressors. And we are sinners. We are sinners, therefore we are transgressors. Our nature has fallen short of the glory of God, therefore our actions will always transgress or go against His law in our nature. That's what he says in verse 15. How did Abraham receive the promise? Because he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What was he trusting in? He was trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ because he saw Christ's day in the future and he rejoiced. Will he receive the whole world? Yes, indeed. He has received it in Christ and it will be fully realized in the age to come when he gets all the world and we with him. We with him. So what is our focus in this life? It is a focus not on what we can do, but on what Christ has done. 
our focus is on him and him alone. His finished work on our behalf. Literally, we are living lives. We are living lives. Fully depending on what we cannot see. Is it true? As I close, I want to ask, is your faith in what you see? Or is your faith in what you cannot see? I mean, I've talked about faith. I've defined faith. We've shown an example of faith. But now it's time for you to know, is this really my life? Is this definition of faith really what I'm depending on for my life? Or is it something else, whatever that something else is? That's why you're so tired, some of you. You're beat down in this world because you're not trusting him. You're trying to do enough to please him. That's not the life of faith. The life of faith is truly believing that Christ has done all that's necessary to please God. Therefore, his wrath is removed and we have peace with him. And now we live our life. Some of you are exhausted because you're trying to earn from God what he's already freely given. And my word to you would be just like Paul's. Stop. Stop because doing those things as if they are going to make God happy actually nullifies the promise. And others of you aren't tired. You've given up and you're living lawless lives. Why? Because you don't have faith. You wrongly think you can do whatever you want to do, live however you want to live, because God's going to love you anyway. The seed must be in the Christ ground, and then the root will press up the good works that he will do in you. And if you see none of that plant growing, you have no reason to believe your faith is in him. You have no, no, no reason to believe. No reason to believe. So we don't leave here boasting in ourselves nor defeated in ourselves. We leave victorious and blessed in him. That is the gospel. Let's pray. Father, as we close this time in your word, we prepare to sing a response to you. We ask, God, that you would take this message and plant it deep in the heart of those who are yours and that they would believe against all sight. They would believe what they cannot see. And they would trust that you have delivered on your promise in Christ and Christ alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Stand.